pray that you'll help us to learn and to understand from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So my attempt is going to be this, uh, just so you know where I'm going with this. Uh, with prophecy, and, and I know that's tiny print, um, but with prophecy, there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding around it sometimes. Not that I have all the answers. I certainly don't. So I have a, a kind of a direction where I'm going on this. So as I go through, I'll go a little bit at a time, and we'll go as far as I get during the week. I'll be very honest with you. Um, so we're going to try to set a bit of a foundation on this. So one of the things to start with, and, and we're going to talk more about this, was just this remembrance that the Bible is a, a collection of books. So we often talk about it as one book, and that's true in one sense, that it's God's unfolding story to us, but it is a collection of books. And I know I can't even read that. <laughs> but I just want to give you the idea. What we have is it breaks up, and there are different genres even within inside the book. So generally people recognize the Old Testament with the first five books of the Old Testament being the law. And then we would look at what we call history. So I'll read them to you. So we have history and scripture. We have Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then into the New Testament Acts. Now even with inside those narratives of history, you're going to find different genres. And we're going to talk more about genres probably next week. Then we have the wisdom and poetry, which is considered to be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then we come to the prophetic books or the prophecy books. Now here's where it gets a little tricky because some people divide this up even further. So we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Daniel's one we'll talk a little bit more about. Hosea, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Revelation in the New Testament. Then we get into the Gospels, which you're very familiar with, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you get into the Pauline epistles, and then the general epistles, which are Hebrew, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Jude. Anything else in the New Testament was Pauline. So that's generally how we see Scripture and how it breaks up. Uh, as far as what they call biblical literature. But with inside there, there are different genres. And that's where we begin to have to really pay attention when we're work, working with Scripture. Okay. So the first probably question we need to start off with is, why is prophecy so hard? Right? It is. It's sometimes hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to get the pastor to speak on it. Right, Brian? Um <laughs> But it's, 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 it's hard, and we find it hard. Well, there's a few reasons. It can be confusing for us, and here are some of the reasons. One, when you read through it, sometimes it seems disjointed. Like, how does it fit together? And it's more difficult to grasp. It also comes up with strange words that sometimes we don't have the meanings for, or they use illustrations or, or references that we're not familiar with. And, and then, if we don't understand the historical context, it becomes even worse. And, and that's where we kind of get in. Okay, there's prophecy that needs to fit into historical context. And then sometimes there's what we call ap apocalyptic literature, which, which is slightly different. But the references that they choose sometimes are historically and contextually based. And if we don't understand that reference, then we can sometimes do what we do a lot with Scripture. 
it can make it say a lot of different things that it shouldn't say or that it isn't saying. Also, when we come to Revelation, well, that's a whole different ballgame, right? Because it blends. It's apocalyptic. There's prophecy in it. There's letter in it. It, it kind of mixes everything together, which can be most confusing when people start to read it and to work with it. And then what do you do with Daniel? Some people even, I notice in study, leave him out of being a major prophet and put him over to be apocalyptic literature. And it's like, okay. But he was a prophet, but he does have apocalyptic literature too. But what do we mean when we say apocalyptic? We talk about the apocalypse. Okay? Because if we say apocalypse now, I won't pick on some of our younger people here, but zombies will come to mind because that's what they talk about. The zombie apocalypse is coming. You smiled. <laughs> so it's true. When you say apocalypse to my kids in their 20s, it, it, there's been this weird thing with some of the television shows, I guess, that they all think of this zombie apocalypse. So they're not even sure what the word means. So let's go back and start with some basics. What's the true meaning of apocalypse? Because it's not about zombies coming to get us. The book of Revelation in the New Testament, in the original title, it's the Apocalypse of John. So apocalypse equals revelation. And literally the word means uncovered. It comes from the Greek word to literally like pull lid off something to reveal what's inside. I went over to Strong's and looked at it. So we look at Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So when I look up Revelation, oh, look at that. You can even read it. Apocalypse. So it means the appearing, coming, enlightening manifestation to be revealed. Revelation. So it's like when you came home from dinner when you were a kid. Right? Mom would be at the stove. How many did this? You'd go up and you'd, open it up, or you'd lift the pot up where you're yelling, what's for dinner, Mom? Anybody do that? Really? Wow, you guys are all good. Oh, thank you. Somebody else did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we we're forever looking. And if it, if it didn't look good, we hit the cereal cupboard. Um, but that's what it means to reveal what's there. Okay. So why do we have so much problems then understanding it? And some of it is because as even evangelicals disagree on the interpretation, right? Example, there are people, and I wouldn't necessarily call them terrible people, but Jonah historically, is, is, is it history or is it an allegory? I believe it's history. There are some very good people that would take it. No, it's an allegory and we need to understand it that way. I have questions about that. But move off to eschatology, the end times. You get amillennialism. You get postmillennialism. We get premillennialism. You get historic premillennialism. And if you want to talk about the rapture, you get a pre-trib rapture. You get a mid-trib rapture. You get a, a post-trib rapture. And, and depending who you're listening to, it's, it's very difficult to work through well, which one is which. And how does it fit together? And again, it goes back to some of the terminology. It also goes back there to when it was revealed to us, 
we pull some from Daniel, and then we, we try to make sense more from what we have in Revelation. And, and you have to begin to piece it all together, and it can be a little difficult. One of the other things that's happened in evangelical Christianity is this concept of being fleeced. Right? You know what I mean when I say you've been fleeced? Okay? As Christians, we have to watch that we don't get fleeced, get taken advantage of. And, and how many prophetic ministries are there? Anybody have the religious channels? I don't even know what they are on cable. Daystar or anything like that. I think Daystar is one. You look up on the internet, prophetic ministries, and, and you just page after page after page. And it's people running around teaching prophecy in their own opinion or their own truth. And sometimes it's not like they've been to Bible college or anything for it or seminary. They just, this is what I think. One example of that is when I was young, we always had heard, okay, Israel's a nation in 1948, not a generation, and, and Christ is going to come back. And there are lots of people predicting this was going to happen. Well, a generation is 20 to 30 years. Three or four generations have passed, and Christ has not returned. A lot of time's gone by since 1948. But this is confusing because a lot of people look at it and go, what? Hasn't it happened yet? I had relatives that left the church all on the basis of the fact that they kept hearing it was going to happen, it was going to happen. And all these signs, and when it didn't match up to what was happening, they walked away. So money's a big thing. Prophetic ministries, they're on TV, radio, online, podcast conferences, and their whole thing is you go to these places and you buy stuff. So you can know your, their truth. Send us the money. We want to support the ministry. You see this again and again. And it's very dangerous because it has spun off some things that we have to watch for nowadays. Bethel School of Prophets. This is a warning. Accelerate your prophetic calling. There's this new movement, new, uh, new apostolic reformation. It's been around for a while. But it's somewhat dangerous. So here's some of the things they say. God is good. So, yes, okay, we can say God is good. So, we are required to dream big. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with dreaming and, and setting big goals for yourself. But I'm not sure you can find that with Scripture. Same with the second one. Nothing is impossible. So, nothing is impossible. So, a huge part of our life is designed around taking risk. Again, I'm not sure where they pull that from Scripture. Here's another one. This comes from their statements. We believe in the victorious, redemptive work of Christ on the cross provides freedom from the power of the enemy, sin, lies, sickness, and torment. So you may recall that the last fall, last summer, one of the gentlemen that works at Bethel in uh, California, his daughter died. And they asked for this huge prayer meeting online saying we want you to pray because we know that God's going to raise her from the dead. We have the power of the prophetic. We're apostles within the church. We can raise them from the dead if enough people will believe. A couple of days went by, three or four days, and finally they had to hold the funeral because the little girl did not come back to life. But they believe they have, as apostles and prophets, they have sickness all under their thumb. They just have to say the word and it's gone. Torment, I've read, did some reading on them. It seems to think around mental anguish and different things like that. 
They also believe in the ever-increasing government of God, in the blessed hope which is glorious, visible return of Christ to rule and reign with his overcoming bride, the church. But they believe that they're doing that now. So why I bring this up is because with a, with a huge emphasis sometimes on the prophetic, people get excited and they want to see God's power at work and they want to see things happen and they begin to move down these paths that take them into the wrong direction. So we, we need to understand where we're going and we need to be very careful uh, with these things. Here's a video clip I want you to watch on it. It comes up. What's the new apostolic reformation? Today's question is, what is the new apostolic reformation? In this video, I'll answer that question from a biblical perspective. Then afterwards, as always, I'll share some helpful resources. So stick around until the end. The New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, is an unbiblical religious movement that emphasizes experience over scripture, mysticism over doctrine, and modern-day apostles over the plain text of the Bible. Of particular distinction in the New Apostolic Reformation are the role and power of spiritual leaders and miracle workers, the reception of new revelations from God, an overemphasis on spiritual warfare, and a pursuit of cultural and political control in society. The seeking of signs and wonders in the NAR is always accompanied by blatantly false doctrine. Growth in the New Apostolic Reformation is driven primarily through small groups and church planting, often completely independent of a parent congregation. The movement is not centrally controlled, and many of its followers will not self-identify as part of it or even recognize the name. All the same, thousands of churches and millions of believers adhere to the teachings of the New Apostolic Reformation. Popular teachers associated with the New Apostolic Reformation include Bill Johnson, Rick Joyner, Kim Clement, and Lou Engel. The New Apostolic Reformation teaches that God's intended form of church governance is apostles and prophets holding leadership over evangelists, pastors, and teachers. However, this has not been the case for the vast majority of Christian history. So, according to the New Apostolic Reformation, God began to restore prophets and apostles over the last 30 to 40 years. Only now, as the church is properly guided by the appropriate spiritual leaders, can it fulfill its commission. This commission is seen as more than spiritual, as it includes cultural and political control. In the New Apostolic Reformation, apostles are seen as the highest of all spiritual leaders, being specially empowered by God. True maturity and unity per the New Apostolic Reformation is only found in those who submit to the leadership of their apostles. According to this teaching, as the church unifies behind the apostles, these leaders will develop greater and greater supernatural powers. Eventually, this will include the ability to perform mass healings and suspend the laws of physics. These signs are meant to encourage a mass wave of converts to Christianity. These apostles are also destined to be recipients of a great wealth transfer in the end times, which will enable the church to establish God's kingdom on earth. Prophets in the New Apostolic Reformation are almost as important as apostles. These people have been empowered to receive new revelations from God that will aid the church in establishing dominion. 
According to the New Apostolic Reformation, only prophets and occasionally apostles can obtain new revelations. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers cannot. The prophets' new revelations are crucial to overcoming the world, and the success of the church depends on the apostles following through on the information prophets provide. Most of their prophecies are extremely vague and easy to reinterpret, and the New Apostolic Reformation is willing to modify them since they set no standard of infallibility for themselves. According to the New Apostolic thinking, mankind lost its dominion over earth as part of the fall of Adam. So, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not only resolved our sin debt, but it empowered mankind, specifically Christians, to retake control of the earth. The New Apostolic Reformation sees seven areas in which believers are supposedly empowered and expected to dominate. Government, arts, finances, education, religion, family, and media. Of these, the New Apostolic Reformation sees government as the most important because of its ability to influence all the other facets of life. As a result, the New Apostolic Reformation overtly encourages Christian control over politics, culture, and business. In some ways, this is nothing unusual, as people should be expected to vote and lobby according to their convictions. The New Apostolic Reformation, however, is often accused of pushing for outright theocracy. Spiritual warfare, according to the New Apostolic Reformation, is meant to resolve worldly concerns. For example, economic troubles or health problems in a particular city are seen as the result of a demonic spirit's influence. Prayer, research into the specific name of that demon, and other spiritual disciplines are then applied in an effort to combat this presence. It is necessary not only for the health of the region, but also because the church cannot take dominion over that area until the demonic control has been lifted. Biblically, there are major problems with the New Apostolic Reformation. Claiming that Christians have access to certain spiritual gifts is one thing, but their distinctive approach to the role of apostles and prophets is a stretch from what is found in the Bible. More to the point, the office of apostle requires traits that are impossible today. For example, true apostles must be personal eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 and 8 specifically designated as apostles by Jesus in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 and Luke chapter 6 verse 13 and already verified by miraculous signs Acts chapter 5 verse 12 the idea of new revelations from God especially those that come in the form of vague easily reinterpreted mysteries runs counter to the idea of a faith delivered once for all to mankind Jude chapter 1 verse 3 the fact that new apostolic reformation prophecies frequently turn out to be false suggests a false spirit behind those prophecies. The tendency of the new apostolic reformation to treat spiritual warfare as a type of Christianized voodoo is not only unbiblical, but dangerous. Likewise, the emphasis on an earthly kingdom contradicts Jesus' own declaration that the kingdom of God was spiritual, not political. John chapter 18, verse 36. It places an unhealthy emphasis on political and worldly approval, rather than Christ-like influence. Though it uses the word new, the New Apostolic Reformation is actually a reworking of a very common, very old approach. Since the beginning of Christianity, various groups have claimed to have a new revelation from God to correct all the errors of the present world. 
These movements contend that real spirituality or maturity or truth is found only by those who listen to their leadership. Some of these sects, such as the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism, endure to become religions in their own right. Others fade away. Much of what the New Apostolic Reformation teaches has at least some basis in Scripture, albeit carried much further than the Bible intends. That, however, still makes those doctrines unbiblical, and Christians should flatly reject the New Apostolic Reformation's teachings and those who choose to be associated with it. Want to learn more? Subscribe so you don't miss the next video. Visit gotquestions.org for more great content and check out the details section below this video. There's one book I recommend along with several links to related questions. If you'd like to learn about Bible Munch or if you're interested in... And one of the dangers that we have with that... One of the dangers that we have with that is that with many things, people get drawn in. So we have to understand what a prophet is and, and then move from that as we look at the literature uh, that is left behind for us. And this is really big. Um, this movement is huge, and it's drawn in, and oftentimes it seeps into the church through its music. Uh, Bethel music would be one that's sung in many churches. But here's just a few people involved with it. Heidi Baker, I believe she's out of Africa and has been uh, known in the charismatic movement for a number of years. Um, the one next, I, I didn't know who the pastor was, but I found it interesting, his presidency of Portland Bible College. And then again, Asbury College. I, I understand it's more of a Pentecostal-type college, but it really surprised me, the connection back to there. Uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, uh, I think we would know that one. And Peter C. Wagner, I've read numerous of his material, uh, was once a, a prominent theologian at, uh, and did a lot in the area of church planting at a Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, he's moved off and he's heavily involved with inside this new movement. Uh, Todd White, uh, who you'll see all over social media all the time, is involved with it. And of course, the old Kenneth Copeland Ministries is heavily involved. Yes, most people there. Just a couple of quotes from a couple of articles I found. The first one comes out of NPR Radio, which I found interesting. On Alice Patterson, a leader of the New Apostolic Reformation, and one of the leadership team members at Rick Perry's prayer rally, said on stage that the Democrat Party is a demon structure. Now, that's how she got in the news. Rick Perry, if you don't know, he is the governor of Texas, and the one that they were hoping would be one that might run for the presidency in the USA. So you can see how they begin to plant themselves in the political structure, looking for influence and power. The next one's from Faith Today out of Canada. Studying the movement is complicated since it's not structured like a denomination, but it's more diverse and fluid. And since not all churches and leaders that align with the movement welcome the label, of most significance here is Bill Johnson and his famous Bethel Church in Redding, California. Similarly, there's wildly influential Hillsong from Australia, led by Brian Houston and his wife, Bobby. So neither of those, if you were to ask them, well, you part of this new apostolic reformation, even though the church doctrine lines up with the, the movement, they will deny that altogether. So one of the things we need to remember when we think of a prophetic literature and the apocalypse or apolytic literature is we've got to take it into a biblical context and not go off in some wild directions. So another reason why it's so confusing. 
They were all the dates that I could find when people claimed that Christ would return. So it happens over and over and over again. He's going to return here. He's going to come there. So we have January 1st and a February 20th back in 1524. Interesting, there are a couple of people that are on that list that you may have heard of. Hal Lindsey, 1988, was his proclamation to the media. Jerry Falwell proclaimed sometime between 1999 and 2009 that Christ would return. Jack Van Impey, 2012. We even have some future dates where they say it's going to be 2024, 2025, 2029, and then way off to 2057. So when people look at this stuff, it becomes very confusing when you look at prophecy. Why bother if no one could figure anything out? And it often leads to apathy. And the apathy leads to we give up trying. So we take large parts of Scripture and, and we set them aside because of all the confusion around it. So, how do we avoid apathy? Well, what is a prophet? He's asked that question. The Old Testament, Nabi, the New Testament, prophetess. In the Old Testament, the role was much the same in the New Testament. Forthtelling, so enforcing the covenant. That's what it was based off. So the preaching was based off the covenant. That which God had given to them, that was where they were basing their works from. And then calling them back to live according to that covenant. According to the laws, they were called back to live to that. And then you have foretelling, the future announcement. And if you look at all the prophets that might be mentioned in Scripture, all of them were foretelling, but not all of them were foretelling. So that idea of predictive literature, uh, of a predictive announcement of what was going to happen in the future was not in all their ministries, but that was certainly part of the ministry. And there are two different types of prophets. You have the non-writing prophets, or what they might call the former prophets. So Samuel, Elijah, Elisha would fall into that. And then you have the writing prophets, and they call them the latter prophets. They would be the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and many of the minor prophets who we know wrote their books and put their books together. So, now here's the big question. How did God inspire the prophets? When they wrote, how did God inspire them? Anybody know? Same way we say in the New Testament. Same exact way. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That verse is just as applicable in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit moved upon them. So we see all Scripture. So that's the authoritative writings. We even learned this morning that as Jesus looked at the Old Testament and what they had put together, he quotes much of the Old Testament, including Jonah. So we can see New Testament apostles and writers quoting the Old Testament, giving the authority that it's part of Scripture, and that it's breathed, that it's inspired by God. Think of a wind in a sailboat as a poor example, but God breathed and moved them along. So here's an example. Whoops, one more. Second Peter one twenty one, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So we see that concept of the Spirit moving them. 
So here's an accepted definition of verbal inspiration. God so moved the human authors of Scripture that the resulting product was the Word of God written totally without error in all that it affirms in the original autographs. God did not violate their personality or their life experience. And we can see that. Because some of the, and I'm not a literature expert, but in some of the minor prophets or in some of the prophets in general, they have huge vocabularies. And in others, their vocabulary is very limited. It's, they don't use as many words. He doesn't violate their personality. Now, it was interesting to read. I didn't say it this morning, but it was Fuller Evangelical Seminary in California that I was reading some stuff on. And that they have professors that would believe in this statement and then other professors that don't believe in this statement. They believe in limited inerrancy. So when, when, when Scripture does not line up with what they perceive to be science, Scripture's wrong. So then they take, they take science, science, which is ever-changing. That's the whole basis of science. You're always challenging it. Science then becomes superior to the Word of God. They do the same thing with things in history. The problem with that is oftentimes when you look and follow what's happening in archaeology and biblical archaeology, every time they find something, hmm, it seems to line up exactly with where Scripture's at. So we need to understand that when they wrote and they predicted, they were being moved by the Spirit just like we would think of the New Testament writers. But how much did they understand of their words? Did they understand everything? Well, not according to Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. So we talked about this before. They understood some, and especially if it was something that was predicted that was going to happen in near time, but if it had sort of a double meaning to it, they, they, they couldn't always catch it. They didn't always know what was being said, especially if it was prediction of something of Christ coming into the future. And again, from 1 Peter 1.11, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, they were serving not themselves, but you in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things into which the angels long to look." So he had said for it for when the prophets looked, they might see something like this, and they can see into the future, but, but they can't see what distance is between those mountains. And then when they get a little bit further along, and when we look back at it, we actually see what they should have seen was this. Oh, wait a second. The mountains are farther apart. It's not exactly how they saw it. So did they understand everything? Not everything, and neither did they understand the timing of everything. We'll go through that a little bit next time we're together. So next time we're going to talk uh, that, you know, it matters what the original intent of the text was. 
And I think that's very important as we look at prophecy. What was the original intent? And there's a little bit of difference when we get into apocalyptic literature. Okay, so that's where we are for tonight. We'll pick up next week from there and begin to build a little bit more of a basis. Okay? Let's close in prayer then. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness again, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be certain that the word that we have was moved by the Spirit and given to men and that we can have confidence. We can have confidence. We don't have to put our faith in an, in an ever-changing science, but we can put our faith in the stability of a God that never changes and that has set his love upon us. Tonight, as we leave and as we go about our week this week, uh, may we reflect on these words, may we reflect on your goodness and your holiness. And Father, may that be reflected in our lives as we go about our work duties and interacting with the community in any way that they might be able to see you through us as we live according to your word. In Christ we pray, amen.